welcome to the Pediatric Assembly International Relations Committee um, podcast. I'm Özge Yılbaz. I'm from Turkey, Manisa Celalbaya University, and my co-chair. Uh, hello, I am Laura Gochicoa from the National Institute of Respiratory Diseases in Mexico City. Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome to our podcast that is being held by ATS Pediatric Assembly International Relations Committee National Delegates, during which professionals worldwide will share their COVID experience in children. This podcast does not aim to share centralized information about pediatric patient numbers, which is available through many international healthcare websites or treatment protocols. But we aim to share our personal experience in organizing the pediatric care in our own institutes, protecting healthcare workers, isolation practices, and finally, we would like to share what we learned through this process. The American Thoracic Society and individual participants in this educational podcast disclaim responsibility for the content of contributed perspectives of participants. Information included does not establish a medical standard of care to be followed in every medical center or patient encounter. It is recognized that each medical situation is different and all persons involved in providing health care should use their judgment in determining what is the best interest of the patient based on the circumstances existing at the time. Medical knowledge and best practices are constantly changing. Public viewers are advised to consult with a licensed and qualified health care provider for any specific medical condition or problem their child may have. The participants in this forum assume no liability for any adverse effects to persons or property from any use or application of the information contained herein. So we're going to start with the question one. So we start with Dr. Gary Wong from Prince of Wales Hospital in Hong Kong. So Dr. Gary Wong, what is your current experience in your country? The, the outbreak started in Wuhan first and then spread throughout China and also spread to Hong Kong. The very uh, thing that we learned early on is the children are not that sick. And uh, the second thing we learned, because in general, the children came from families with adults with confirmed infection. So subsequently, we start testing more and more children, even if they were asymptomatic from family with a confirmed adult case. So as a result of that, we diagnosed a lot of asymptomatic children and mildly symptomatic children and we even have uh, children. Actually, they were sick within a household, and they were the very first member that got sick because they developed the symptoms first, and then subsequently there were adults within the same household developed symptoms. Now, of course, it's difficult to tell whether the whole family were exposed to a common source or whether the children were in fact the index case. But given the available data from adult and older children, it, it appears that you know, those children, particularly the adolescent, they, the asymptomatic ones, would shed as many viral particles from the respiratory secretion just as the symptomatic ones. So 
one may suspect that they may play a very important role in spreading infections around. And all the sick children, the, the sicker ones, tend to have an underlying disease like oncology condition or neurodevelopmental conditions. And uh, by and large, the experience is it's not, you know, that difficult for pediatricians to look after these patients. But I think my major concern are there could be a lot of asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic case going around in the community propagating the infection. Okay, thank you very much, Dr. Gary Wong. So, um, uh, Dr. Ralph Epau from Centre Intercommunal de Cretil in France, how? What is your current experience there? Hello, everyone. Uh, so my name is Ralph Epau. My hospital uh, is in France, in Créteil. It's in the suburbs of Paris. It's a general hospital. And uh, I am personally heading a general pediatrician department. We have in our department uh, general pediatrics, but also a reference center for sickle cell disease and one of the four uh, reference centers for uh, rare lung disease and also a CF center. So, um, as it was noticed by Gary and in other countries, children uh, are not very sick usually. The presentation is very heterogeneous with many asymptomatic or post-symptomatic children. And as you uh, will say, the issue was that children may disseminate the infection to other fragile groups, particularly adults. However, uh, we have several very severe cases. As you may know, we, are, we have one death of a 16-year-old girl. Uh, it was surprising because she didn't have any comorbidities. And I guess at this moment, uh, we have four or five children in the area uh, who are or have been ventilated around Paris. Most of them have comorbidity. Uh, we also identify uh, a, a very uh, a presentation in uh, neonates. Uh, they have like fever. It's almost like a flu. They have with or, or metapneumonic virus. They have fever and they are very hypersensitive. Uh, you touch them, they're very sensitive, and but. Usually they, they, they are doing well after five or six days. And I'm not sure, I think one or two were ventilated. Uh, since we, are a, uh, we have a center of rare lung disease, we were very concerned about children uh, with underlying chronic disease, such as a CF or PCD. And we were concerned they develop very severe disease. But at this moment, I must say it is not the case. We, and we don't have a specific protocol for these children. Few words about our organization. In the emergency department, we have separated the ER into two pathways for COVID and non-COVID patients. Patients are seen on the ar arrival by initial patient assessment nurse, and they are separating 
according to symptoms in two different waiting rooms or placed directly in the dedicated infection examination rooms. During their stay in the emergency room, we try to ensure that they never cross each other to minimize the risk of transmission. It was a, a lot of procedures that we have made to avoid the, 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 the cross and the transmission. On the care unit, we have divided in two units, COVID plus, confirmed or suspected, and COVID negative. And all patients in the COVID plus room they have a COVID isolation procedures and all are tested for the COVID. In consultation, we have cancelled all non-urgent consultation and day hospital. We do teleconsultation as much as possible and we only see emergencies. Okay. Oh, thank you very much, doctor. Uh, so, and Dr. Paul Moore, from the Monroe Carroll Junior Children's Hospital in Vanderbilt University. Can you share with us your current experience in the United States, please? Lauren Osgay, thanks for the introduction and for organizing this podcast. I currently serve as chair of the Pediatric Assembly of the American Thoracic Society, and our thoughts and prayers go out to colleagues in pediatrics and all the ATS who serve on the front line in this pandemic. At the time of this podcast, the United States is now leading the world in the number of COVID-19 cases, and we are currently seeing a steep rise in mortality. As widely reported on news outlets, large dense urban centers have been most impacted, Seattle originally and now New York City, New Orleans, and others. The early reports from the U.S. cities currently most impacted mirror reports from China and Italy that there are very few pediatric admissions, including to the pediatric intensive care unit and even among children with chronic diseases. The focus of my institution located in Nashville, Tennessee, reflects what is being done at academic centers across the U.S. Within days of the first reports of COVID-19 in our community, our medical center quickly canceled conferences and travel as a prelude to social distancing measures. We canceled all elective outpatient visits and procedures which has resulted in a sudden shift to telehealth as the primary platform in which we provide care. The, US, the use of telehealth has required enormous efforts by IT to set up equipment, by providers to be trained, by administrative staff to enroll and schedule patients, and for families to understand how to connect with us. My early personal experience with telehealth had been immensely rewarding as I've had virtual home visits with children and their families for whom I provided care for years. These visits have allowed me to provide reassurance and anticipatory guidance to those with chronic diseases. The conversion to telehealth is an essential part of our effort to limit potential exposures to our patients and our staff. On the inpatient side, we have limited visitors to the hospital to only one patient or guardian. Daily temperature checks are the norm for visitors and staff, as evidenced by this sticker on my, on my shirt this morning. A large focus in preservation of invaluable personal protective equipment because we know that our adult colleagues will require it in much greater numbers in the days and weeks ahead. Providers dual trained in MedPeds are being deployed to the adult side and, and available ambulatory staff are assigned in other roles. The images in New York City of hospitals being constructed in Central Park, the Convention Center, hospital lobbies, and the arrival of the U.S. Naval Hospital Ship Comfort are poignant reminders of the surge in adult patients requiring hospitalization and ICU care, and our institution has already built additional bed capacity in preparation. 
At some institutions, children's hospitals are being used to care for adults, and the scope of pediatric providers is expanded to care for young adults with other conditions as COVID-19 has stretched adult institutions far beyond capacity. As pediatric pulmonologists, we must prepare to do whatever we can to help our colleagues who care for adult patients. I know we can live up to the challenge. Thank okay, you. of course. Thank you very much, Dr. Paul Moore. So I introduce Dr. Larry Lance from Montreal Children's Hospital at McGill University Healthcare Center at Canada. Dr. Larry Lance, can you share with us your experience in, your, in Canada? Yes, so um, in Canada, children, just like most places, has been uh, relatively spared. Uh, I will say Canada is a country of travelers. Canadians love to travel. Um, and uh, originally, almost all the cases were related to uh, people who either were returning to Canada or came to visit Canada or were in contact with visitors. And now, however, now we are having a community spread. Um, the, just to give you some statistics, uh, the latest statistics from Canada, only 4% of the of, uh, tested positive patients have been uh, children, those 19 years uh, and under, and only 2% uh, are uh, amongst those who are hospitalized. Uh, actually, the raw numbers, we're talking about five children, 19 years or under, who have been hospitalized. Uh, three of those are zero to nine, and uh, three are above that. Um, we we are conscious of the fact that you can have false negative swabs. Uh, we had one 12-year-old uh, with bad asthma, asthma whose x-ray really looked uh, like COVID, uh, however, uh, tested twice and was negative. Um, I'd say one of the best things that was done relatively quickly in Canada is that uh, schools and daycares were closed. Um, it is winter in Canada. It is a uh, viral season or flu season. Um, uh, many of, many patients uh, use emergency rooms as their first line of, uh, of care. And I can tell you that the emergency rooms saw a dramatic drop um, in emergency room visits. So it just spoke to overall uh, viral prevalence and the amount of disease that, that we get uh, through the schools and the daycare. So that's been uh, really good. Um, as was mentioned, yes, we, we have split our ER into a COVID uh, suspect or positive section and a COVID negative section. Um, we were, one of the challenges always is having enough negative pressure rooms. Uh, I'm in a new hospital. It's uh, a little over four years old. I was involved in the construction. So actually I designed uh, our clinic and pulmonary function lab, which are in the same space, that all the pulmonary function rooms were negative pressure and uh, five of my uh, examining rooms were negative pressure. Uh, and now that has been seconded uh, by the emergency room. So that is now becoming a uh, emergency room a COVID observation uh, unit. So, oh, wow. um, so uh, that uh, challenge we did uh, for those hospitals, we have created a uh, COVID uh, suspect uh, or positive uh, ward. Um, in those rooms, obviously they weren't all, they weren't negative pressure rooms. Uh, what they've done is they've created a little antechamber for each room 
that apparently is negative pressure. I, I can't tell you exactly how it works, uh, but uh, basically people are going to go uh, dress up, uh, go into the negative chamber, uh, then enter into the room. Uh, then when they come out of the room, uh, they go quickly just into that little antechamber, uh, will uh, doff and then, and then come out. Uh, but like I said, we haven't had uh, much uh, experience or uh, or use of those rooms as yet. Um, I'll just mention so limitations that we've had. Um, uh, we'd love to do more testing. There are limitations both on access to uh, swabs and media for uh, for transport to do the uh, testing, and even uh, there's backlogs in the testing. Uh, we've gotten machinery now to be able to do uh, more testing, but there has been a delay in that. Um, just like everybody else, uh, there are concerns about uh, access to uh, personal protection equipment, uh, especially N95 masks, um, and now they are exploring uh, alternatives like other places in terms of how many times could you reuse a mask, uh, could the mask, if it hasn't been frankly soiled, uh, cleans, let's say, with UV light, that's being uh, explored. Sure. Okay. Thank you very much, Dr. Larry Lance. So uh, now I will ask Dr. Enrico Lombardi from Major Children's Hospital at Florence, Italy. What is your current experience in Italy, Dr. Enrico? Our hospital is a children's hospital, a pediatric hospital. So. I can confirm uh, that children um, are uh, less affected, as you all know, uh, than adults. So this is also the case here. Uh, we currently have um, five children hospitalized. Um, uh, two of them have um, an oncohematologic problem. Uh, one has tracheal stenosis, and we also have two newborns. Um, the two newborns are uh, actually uh, with very, very, very mild um, uh, symptoms, if, if known symptoms. Um, we have uh, created a ward, um, a COVID ward, just for patients with, uh, uh, with coronavirus disease. Um, and uh, we also have a kind of filter ward where the children waiting for the results of the swab, the nasal swab, the pharyngeal swab are waiting. Um, and we also have, obviously, the, 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 the world for the other diseases, which is also, uh, which is also, so the other one is food. The one for uh, COVID disease is not completely food. We have in, uh, in the world, um, the, in the pediatric world, so in the general pediatric world, we have um, that um, for the designated for uh, COVID, uh, we have about 50% of the um, rooms uh, with negative pressure. Um, in, in general, in Tuscany, the situation is not as bad as in northern Italy. In northern Italy, we have passed uh, 100,000 um, 100, cases and with almost 100,000, um, uh, with almost 1,200,000 dead. So the situation here is uh, a little um, is better than uh, um, in northern Italy and in the, in, in the hospital, what we have done. Uh, is uh, first of all, so here too, the schools are closed, and uh, uh, basically uh, most um, work activities are closed, but the essential ones. Uh, 
we have a checkpoint for uh, uh, patients who went uh, for, for, for the subjects who went to the hospital, including the staff. Checkpoint for temperature. Uh, you need a kind of uh, written uh, invitation to enter the, the, the hospital for, for uh, emergency uh, visits or something like that. And so we have also uh, we have we have also cancelled uh, most of our ambulatory visits. We have just kept the urgent ones. And I also discovered that it was it's it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a nice thing to have to keep your uh, relationship with uh, your patients via uh, telemedicine. Okay, so thank you very much, Dr. Enrico. So now we uh, will ask Dr. Hannah Blue from the Pulmonary Institute at Shane Snyder Children's Medical Center in Israel. Dr. Hannah, what is your, what is your current experience in your country now? Thank you. Oscar and Laura for the invitation. And uh, it's really interesting that it's quite similar so far in that the children are mild. Um, perhaps something that started very early on here, right at the beginning of the epidemic, was a massive um, stress on dividing the old people from the children. And that happened right in the very beginning which is quite traumatic here because grandparents are very hands-on uh, seeing their grandchildren and taking part in caring for grandchildren, but all that has been stopped completely. And the lockdown started quite early as well. Uh, so at the moment, uh, under the age of 10, about 3% of all the cases. And uh, in the experience at Schneider Children's, which is a major pediatric hospital, uh, one of the three wards at the moment has been designated uh, for corona, and there are nine inpatients aged 10 months to 16 years, all are mild, none have needed ICU. One ICU is ready to go if, if required, and then all the other patients will go over to cardiac ICU. So all is ready for that. And the children go into a room where they're really seen by the medical staff. It's all done through uh, closed circuit TV. There's one carer, parent there for the entire stay. And uh, they have monitors and they all have, have something called a TITO, which is a device that connects to the smartphone. And you can then uh, actually auscultate and also uh, see uh, the throat. And it's been adapted from primary pediatrics here where there is a telemedicine uh, option available in the last year in primary pediatrics in one of our health services. So we're using that as well. Uh, the staff in that ward, of course, are, are completely um, double-gowned, N95 masks, visors, uh, etc. As far as the whole hospital goes, it's been divided into two teams, a blue team and a white team, and each one is self-sufficient, say in pulmonary, uh, so there's ability for bronchoscopy, CF specialty, pulmonary nurse, lung function technician. So that if there's exposure and they have to go into quarantine, we don't lose the entire service to the hospital. And it can still go on and uh, not paralyze. And as far as we go, uh, the, the outpatient was closed two weeks ago. Um, all patients are given a call and telemedicine visit by the doctor who knows them and was going to see them. These often last about 20 minutes. 
and uh, have been extremely valuable. And then only the urgent ones come in, which say of about 50 patients planned would be one or two a day. Um, so far, we haven't had any um, major problems with our chronic patients. Um, we've cut down lung function tests also to an absolute minimum, only when essential for planning care. And uh, for bronchoscopies, which have to happen, so the patients are tested the day before to make sure they're COVID negative before it happens, and the same also for essential operations in the hospital. Uh, the emergency room, everyone is a suspect for corona, and so the whole emergency room staff is gowned and, and, and completely dressed uh, to prevent infection from that point of view. Um, all nebulizer use has stopped in the hospital, and that has been a major challenge. Uh, we've actually been planning to do it for quite a few years, and for all kinds of bureaucratic reasons, it has been delayed. But now we already have the aero chambers that can be sterilized and everything, and it's just lifted up in, in one week, and there's been a national protocol written for that, how to do that. So nebulizers are out and spaces are in, but I don't have an answer to Heather's question about uh, giving epinephrine. Uh, so that's how we're going at the moment. And um, we're starting in the community with uh, online consultations as well for pulmonologists and other specialists. Uh, this is just taking off now. Primary pediatrics and primary GPs uh, are already on, been online for the last few weeks. So I think this is global and things are actually quite similar. Oh, absolutely. Yes, thank you very much, Dr. Hannah Blue. So now we are going to ask Dr. Heather Saar from the University of Cape Town in South Africa if you can share your current experience in your country, Dr. Heather Saar. And just to say how, how grateful I am to, to my, everyone who's gone before, because in South Africa we're obviously a little bit behind. Um, uh, in terms of, okay, I'm, I'm going to have to stop now, but yeah, it's giving me problems, okay. Uh, in terms of the epidemic, um, which has, you know, um, we just, we on the up curve now with um, over uh, about 1,500 cases. Um, so it's really incredible to have the opportunity to learn from you all. Um, in terms of what South Africa's done, this, uh, the worry in South Africa is, of course, around very vulnerable populations, like 25% of our population are HIV infected. There's very high prevalence of TB, as you know, there's malnutrition. So there's several risk factors that are different to high-income settings. And we are about to go into our RSV and influenza season. So, you know, I think there's a lot of anxiety about this. Um, in terms of living conditions, it's South Africa is on lockdown. All schools and universities have been closed, but it's really difficult to, to implement social distancing in poor environments. And if you would have seen yesterday the queues of people queuing for their social grants, all elderly people, maybe a thousand, two thousand in the queue stacked together. This is a recipe for disaster and transmission. And, and similarly, in you know, the very poor areas in which people are living, six in a, in a house and so on. So the lockdown, I'm not sure, will work in the same way that it's worked for other countries because it's just so hard to implement in, in our kinds of environments. So again, a lot of worry about that, um, especially in terms of adult cases. 
In terms of what we've seen so far, we've been testing at my hospital, which is Red Cross Children's Hospital. It's the biggest children's hospital in uh, Africa, about 310 beds. Um, we have had, we've been testing since the 16th of March. We have no cases. We test every child who comes in with low respiratory tract infection, no confirmed cases. Um, starting to see we have RSV cases and we have influenza cases. So this is going to be a challenge to distinguish them. Um, yes, we've also stopped ambulatory clinics, um, moving more towards telemedicine. Um, the other challenge in our setting is personal protective equipment, and it's something that I feel uh, neurotic about, given what we've seen in healthcare worker fatalities from Italy, China, and other places. Yesterday, for example, my daughter in the emergency room, who's a frontline doctor, there was not a mask in sight. Um, you know, this is in an adult emergency room. So never mind N95 masks. We, we are struggling to get simple surgical masks. Uh, it's absolutely a, a dire situation. Um, one issue that I wanted to ask colleagues um, advice on or what is being recommended, uh, because I see increasingly there is a move towards uh, mass use of masks. So whereas WHO, the US CDC has said the only people who should use masks are those who are sick or who have symptoms, put the mask on and that protects others. Because as Gary said, there's so much asymptomatic and uh, trans, uh, so much asymptomatic disease and so much mild illness. Uh, something we're particularly worried about in, in South Africa. The, I see the CDC today is reconsidering its recommendations and the Chinese CDC, for example, recommends mass use of, of masks, as does, for example, a country like Czechoslovakia. Now, obviously, the supply issue is key, as, uh, as I've said, but what is being recommended is homemade masks for mass population use, and I'd really value people's opinion on this, that question, and I'd also value people's opinion on, in the context in which I'm describing, whether all our, our workers within the healthcare facilities, and this means doctors, nurses, porters, admin staff, whoever, should also be wearing, at a minimum, um, surgical masks, uh, because Again, protecting our staff is, is, is really, really uh, a key challenge, I think, for us, and, and we just cannot afford to, to lose uh, staff. Uh, I was interested also to hear about caregiver screening. What I heard is that people are doing daily temperature checks on caregivers as, 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 a, uh, as a way of screening. Are you also insisting that all caregivers wear masks in healthcare facilities? Those are my questions. Thank you very much. Last question is what about the use of high flow oxygen? Has that been banned in institutions? High flow and I guess linked to that CPAP. Yeah. May I just have one quick feedback on the question related to mask? Yes, the that's thing, what I want. Yes. You know, in Hong Kong and in China, we have been very obsessed about putting masks on for the general population if you go out on the street. And now, if that happens, now on, on the assumption that there is a good enough supply, you would see a dramatic drop 
in the other circulation respiratory virus. In fact, in the last month and a half, you know, I can count the number of viral respiratory tract infection in children in our hospital, which is one of the biggest in the region in Hong Kong. You know, I, I can count the number of kids in one hand. It's very similar to our experience in SARS. So if you guys are seeing a lot of other viral respiratory tract infections, that means if they're cold, it will be. So I, 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 you know, if the supply or whatever way you, you, you can institute your social distancing and mass, you know, I, I must say it really works because not only we got rid of the community transmission, COVID-19, we actually got rid of all or most I would say it dropped by 95% of all the other respiratory viral infection in children. And because there are no rhinovirus around, and we don't even have asthmatic attack coming to the hospital. Wow. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Gary Wong. Okay, so we will move uh, to ask Dr. Uh, Renato Stein from the Pontifical Catholic University of Rio Grande do Sul in Brazil. Dr. Renato, can you please share your current experience in your country? Uh, thank you for, for organizing that. Uh, this is a, a fantastic opportunity. Um, I don't think I have uh, things to say that are different from, from the experience that uh, others have already mentioned. Uh, we are uh, on the rise. Uh, uh, we work, our team work in two institutions uh, simultaneously. One that cares for, for private uh, uh, care insurance and the other for the public health, which is the majority of, uh, of the population covered uh, in Brazil who has uh, free access uh, to the system. Um, and uh, we haven't been seeing uh, many kids, as, as Gary just mentioned, uh, uh, we're, we should be in the beginning of, of, of uh, RSV season and we haven't seen much RSV and if there are some, they are, they are mild uh, cases. Uh, so there is uh, the, a protective effect uh, of, uh, of uh, schools uh, being uh, out and all kids being at home. So independent of wearing masks or not, the, the, the cities, uh, the most uh, international cities, cities who have the most uh, international air traffic like Sao Paulo and Rio were the hardest uh, hit in the beginning, but uh, many places uh, throughout the country, it's a huge country, uh, is, is catching up, uh, the curve is an uptrend and um, uh, we, we have uh, done pretty much the same uh, things that all have uh, done in, in the hospitals. Uh, but we, are, we fear that populations that live in overcrowded uh, areas, in, in the favelas, in, in, in the poor slums in the country, where uh, people are gathered in, 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 in large groups of families, uh, uh, may be hard uh, hit by, by the virus, but we haven't seen that so far. Uh, the, the next uh, two weeks may, may be decisive on that. Thank you. Okay. Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Renata Stein. So 
we continue with the quiz number two. Thank you, Laura, for moderating this part. From what we heard until now, it looks like our experiences are quite similar in many ways as pediatric pulmonologists. Now, our second question is, what is the most important message you would like to convey to the international pediatric, uh, pediatric care pediatricians taking care of COVID patients? Can we start with Dr. Gary Wong again uh, from Hong Kong, please? Yeah, I think the first first thing is, you know, because the kids are not that sick, you know, we need to protect our staff from catching the infection. That would be the first thing. The second thing is the heterogeneous type, you know, of symptoms that they present. In fact, a large percentage of our patients among the, you know, the hundreds of patients that we have looked after in China and in Hong Kong, a lot of them present with diarrhea. So in a climate which you do not see a lot of viral infection circulating, if the social distancing, the stopping of school, the locking of people inside a home, you sh we should be seeing very little viral infections in children. So uh, in my institute, anybody who comes into a ward for acute stuff, we check the COVID-19 status. And uh, because, you know, in order to help to cut down transmission in the community, our task would be, you know, identify all the infected ones, prevent them infecting the others, and don't get your staff infected. And that would be uh, my uh, major messages for our fellow pediatricians around the world. Thank you, Dr. Wong. Um, now, I would like to ask the same question to Dr. Paul Moore from U.S. What is your most important message? Well, first of all, I want to thank my international colleagues. Um, it's, it's reassuring to know that, that things done around the world, um, you know, echo some of the things we're trying to do here in the U.S. Uh, I'd like to add a few additional comments. Um, Patient advocacy groups, including the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, the Children's Interstitial Lung Disease Foundation, and many others, have provided reassurance to patients and families and have emphasized the importance of social distancing. We, we couldn't agree more that, that we've got to do everything we can to limit the spread of the disease, but we've also got to make sure that the, the patients who are at home stay healthy by continuing their daily maintenance uh, treatment. Um, of course, although the reports, the numbers are low, we do not know whether there will be long-term sequelae in children infected with COVID-19. In those requiring hospitalization, as, as others have mentioned, um, we've worked closely with respiratory therapy to provide guidelines for care. You know, the meter dose inhaler with spacers strongly preferred over, over uh, nebulizers when delivering uh, medication to minimize aerosolized particles. Um, we recognize that the requirements for medications in adults' hospitals may create shortages or alternate approaches in children's hospitals. Recent critical care guidelines have supported a role for vapotherm in critically ill patients. We've tried to avoid high-flow nasal cannula during transport in patients where COVID-19 results are pending to minimize aerosolized particles, and we've placed a surgical mask on those patients prior to initiation and throughout uh, vapotherm use. We've limited the use of airway clearance therapies and other aerosol-generating procedures and encourage families to provide these treatments for inpatients. Currently in the U.S., there are no approved therapies for prophylaxis or treatment of COVID-19, 
but it will be important to look for application in pediatrics as these trials are underway in adult populations. I think it's also important to recognize that in addition to our efforts to care for patients with COVID-19, we must remember all the other patients in our care. Kathy Edwards, an infectious disease expert at Vanderbilt and the 2020 recipient of the John Holland Award, the highest honor given by the American Pediatric Society, offered these important words. Quote, there are many victims of this outbreak and unfortunately there will be many more. As seen in other outbreaks, including the recent Ebola outbreaks in Africa, the management of other diseases suffers greatly. There's, this is a good lesson for us to remember and ponder how it can be avoided at this time. I'd like to conclude with some inspirational words that Bob Wood, recent winner of the ATS Pediatric Assembly Founders Award shared on the Pete's Lung Listserv. He said, one, forbear, stuff happens and we must put up with stuff we would ordinarily not. Two, forgive, we must give each other the benefit of the doubt and recognize the inherent good and good intentions in each of us. Three, forget, we must not bear grudges and remember the things our loved ones or colleagues said to us yesterday. Four, forward, we must press on towards a brighter future with hope and confidence as we do as we all do the very best we can. I add my hope, confidence, prayers, and thoughts to colleagues in the U.S. and throughout the world. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Moore. Uh, now, Dr. Enrico Lombardi from Italy, what is the message you would like to convey, Enrico? Uh, um, first of all, I agree with uh, uh, Gary that we must keep our um, health workers uh, safe. So uh, that's why, um, well, it's impossible to test everyone. So um, that's why we have limited uh, the access to the, to the hospital, but also uh, we test all children that uh, need to be hospitalized, even if they don't have uh, COVID-like uh, symptoms. Um, and also just to answer the uh, question of, of Heather, uh, about masks, um, we, uh, the, the uh, policy is uh, obviously to keep at least one or two meters of distance from each other, but uh, when this is not possible, uh, we should uh, wear at least uh, surgical masks, and so uh, this is basically what we are doing in the hospital, that we are all uh, uh, wearing surgical uh, masks. Um, um, what I would like to uh, add is what we have learned, what I have learned uh, from this situation. The first one is that it is important to act quickly. Uh, we are seeing now a decrease in uh, uh, cases, and was, uh, we are starting to, to see yesterday, the day before yesterday, we are starting to see uh, a decrease also in the number of dead people, uh, but it is after... Uh, almost two or three weeks after the uh, important uh, social distancing measures were uh, uh, implemented. And so it is very important to act quickly before the tsunami uh, comes. Um, at the hospital level, we have learned uh, to be ready and also we have learned to be flexible. Uh, it's, it's important to, uh, to be flexible in changing our organization very quickly and just, just uh, depending on what you have uh, facing, what, what you are facing. 
the, the personal level, what I've learned is, uh, again, I've appreciated a lot uh, working with, uh, with uh, telemedicine and keeping the relationship with our patients. So uh, this is something, and, but, but also with, uh, with my friends around the world. So uh, just uh, implementing um, telemedicine and the uh, technology stuff. Thank you, Dr. Lombardi. Uh, now we move on to Dr. Hannah Blau from Israel. What is the message you would like to convey, Anna? Um, well, fairly similar to what's been said. Uh, we hope and it seems that corona in children will be mainly mild, though we need to be ready for any eventuality. But the collateral damage to other children could be massive. And this is what we have to, as pediatricians and pediatric lung doctors specialized on, uh, the morbidity of those with chronic lung disease who are avoiding follow-up because of fear. The inaccessibility of care to those who are not chronically looked after, say, by our outpatients department and who don't know who to turn to now. We need to make this care available for them. We're learning the wonders of telemedicine, and I think it's one, wonders, and we need to be flexible. We need to upgrade accessibility to this care and to make ourselves available to reach out, to be easy to reach for people who need help at the moment. Especially for those with chronic illnesses, we have to stress that adherence to care is, prime, is of prime importance at the moment. CFs should continue with their airway clearance. Uh, asthmatics should continue their prophylactic care a little bit over rather than a little bit under at this time to maintain stability as much as possible. Uh, also for children acutely ill, it can be a problem. For instance, there was a case um, in another hospital of a child who complained of some shortness of breath and only came in two days later and turned out to have diabetes ketoacidosis with a pH of 6.9. So acute illness could also be more dangerous at this time and we have to think of facilities to reach out and to provide care through this massive pandemic for these people. We need to think about children at risk. We're now up to 25% unemployment in Israel. Even after the peak of the pandemic, there is gonna be a lot of secondary damage here of poverty, of children who can't get care, um, of psychological problems that will be addressed with another podcast. So all this collateral damage is what we should be trying to think one step ahead and in order to try and reach out and avoid. Uh, that is where a lot of my thoughts and concerns are. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Blow. And now, Dr. Heather Zar from South Africa, what is the lesson that you would like to convey, Heather? So, so I'm not sure I have lessons for anyone on this, uh, for anyone really, given that, um, you know, in, in, uh, we, we're, we're in the early phases. But I think what I've, if I can just give my personal lessons from what I've taken from, from, from everyone and from the literature, is, um, of course, the importance of social distancing, hand-washing, um, self-isolation. And I think Hannah's point is key, keeping the old and young separate, uh, also a challenge in our society. I think Gary's point about protecting our healthcare workers is, is key. Um, and for me, a key issue is infection control within hospitals 
um, that's another question I actually wanted to ask because our hospital is trying to integrate, for example, the respiratory service with the emergency medicine services, with the emergency unit services, which I think is a big mistake. I think they should be completely separate. Uh, what I've heard today is separate contained units, even COVID infected versus uninfected, an emergency unit that is separate with separate staffing, but let me know if, 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 if I'm wrong. Um, for me, a, acute, uh, an acute issue which maybe hasn't been raised here is the levels of anxiety and stress amongst healthcare workers, amongst um, staff, amongst patients, um, uh, which is difficult to manage too. And, and I think, you know, I think we also have to keep perspective here. Most people are not going to get severely ill. Uh, and that message to, to keep on giving our populations um, uh, and really to focus on, on key risk groups that we know um, the elderly, I think, are clearly emerging as the most, um, most um, the highest risk group uh, as our healthcare workers. Um, yeah, and then my last point would be about routine care. Now, we can only do so much in telemedicine. With everything in the lockdown, children aren't getting their routine immunization. Um, this is creating a new, you know, or this will create a new problem. And for example, now as we go into the influenza season, the importance of influenza vaccine. Um, another issue, which which uh, is, is is I think quite important, in, particularly in terms of the elderly and and vulnerable populations. And there's not easy access to that with uh, primary healthcare systems closed and and a lockdown. Uh, and then lastly, I agree with, you know, the long-term impact in terms of poverty, unemployment uh, is, is, is going to be something we're going to have to address. This is going to be with us for a long time. Thank you, Dr. Zar. Uh, and now, Dr. Uh, Larry Lenz from Canada. What is the message you would like to convey, Larry? I just want to add to the concept, I think, Organization within the hospital, within within uh, teams, is very important. Uh, there requires numerous meetings. Uh, it requires developing a staffing mobilization plan. Uh, Hannah mentioned having a sort of an exposed team and unexposed team, uh, but you you need to be able to say to identify where there will be vulnerabilities, uh, where you can ramp up who you can ramp up. We've just instituted a very big online uh, up training, uh, uh, videos, um, PowerPoints, et cetera, uh, to get people up to speed because they're gonna be in areas where they, where they won't necessarily be comfortable. You also have to be very humble and realize you will have to adjust your plan, even possibly in the same day. Uh, but um, communication and doing that type of planning I don't think you can start early enough and you can't uh, meet uh, often enough. You really need to be able to be flexible and adjust on the fly. But I think, uh, as, as Gary mentioned, uh, staff safety is going to be very important and be able to mobilize staff, especially if staff go into quarantine, et cetera. Uh, holes will develop in schedules uh, pretty rapidly. So it's important to have uh, an action plan uh, for your staffing. Thank you, Dr. Lenz. And the same question um, we will ask to Dr. Ralph 
Apple from France. What is your message? It's difficult because a lot of things have, have been said already. I think I will really push on the the the, the fact that the, the children are not very sick, but a lot of them uh, have the COVID. So I think, and uh, I think a, a lot of people uh, already say that, that it is really important to to take care of this, and especially for the staff. We try to divide in the, in the two sections, but it's, it's really difficult. And I think all the children, at least in the hospital, have to be tested because at the moment for us, we test only the one who we think that they, are, they have the COVID, but my experience is sometimes it's, it's so difficult. I think they all have to be tested. I think we need to really protect the staff because even in the past without the COVID, I see today one or two physicians are COVID plus. So something's happened, I don't, I don't know. And uh, again, the, uh, the, I will have to emphasize the, the particular phenotypes of the neonates we, we saw. And it's also important to think about the immunity and what's happened to explain what, why the, the children are not so sick. And it uh, will be very interesting to follow these kids, the young kids, and see the, the results of this infection really uh, early in the, the age. So that, that, that's all, I guess. Thank you, Dr. Epo. Now, last but not least, Dr. Renato Stein from Brazil. Yes, uh, I, I don't think, uh, I don't want to repeat uh, everybody, so I, I just want to, to, to come up with some things that, that were not mentioned. Uh, yes, we're, we're facing a, a very dire situation this year, but nobody knows what will happen in, in, in next seasons and, and uh, why, the, why children are protected and uh, and other uh, groups, other populations are not. So uh, this is a, an interesting time for those who have the ability or, 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 or are involved in, in research to, to collect data in, in, a, in a way that we can learn uh, more about that. Uh, this very likely will, will hit hard this year and, and not so in the following years, but uh, Everything has been changing so much that uh, I, I couldn't say that for sure. So uh, uh, we're, we're preparing a, a study. We hope that we've been working uh, day and night uh, for, for, for the past uh, week or so trying to launch a study and, and look at immune responses in, in, in kids and adults and, and learn a bit more of what's happening uh, and how how do they come out of all this situation in terms of uh, immunity? The, the other thing that I think it's worth uh, mentioning is that we, we should be testing kids. Yesterday, we, I discussed with our fellows a, a case that was typical x-ray of a bacterial pneumonia in hospital, but there, there was uh, a, a discrepancy between clinical uh, the, the, the clinical uh, appearance of, 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 of the kid, which was good, and a very bad X-ray. Although the X-ray looked very much bacterial, uh, 
so I said, we should be testing all those kids for COVID. We don't know much about COVID and COVID could be probably completely different in, in kids uh, than, than it is uh, in, in adults. So I, 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 I think uh, this is something uh, um, we should be looking at. And the, the last uh, thing I, I wanted to mention is that there's a huge divide in the country, but it's not just local. I've been following the news all over uh, between uh, the pressure to reopen businesses, uh, even more so in countries that uh, are, are hard hit and are, are not well off, uh, because a huge number of, of families have their, their gains for informal work. And with the streets empty, uh, 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 people are, are getting the, uh, uh, into a different uh, and completely new situation. So in the next weeks, I think we're going to be facing with this dilemma of for how long can we stand a lockdown? Uh, and I don't think anybody has a, an answer so far. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Spine. Um, since we came to the end of our podcast, we thank all the international participants who came from all different parts of the world in front of their computers and joined us. Uh, it looks like we are still at the beginning and learning about pediatric COVID experience and all their prognosis in children looks much better than adults. We are still to see the results, long-term results and uh, the results in children with chronic diseases. And it looks like all of us are worried about the safety of healthcare uh, workers. Uh, that's the messages I got. Any other comments to make? If then, thank you everyone for joining us. Thank you.